What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. We've got an interesting month coming up for the month of August. I'm actually out visiting my mom, brought the kids and doing a little camp for the kids and moved the entire office up to her place and seen her for three or four weeks, which is really nice to catch up with her and to let the kids see their Mimi. So the office is different. The setup is different. It's probably going to sound different. So I apologize if the sound is not as strong or it's not as crisp and clear. Please bear with me on that. But for the month of August, we're going to be also doing something a little bit different, and we're going to be answering a bunch of our members' questions. So I will dive into that in just a little bit. But first, let's hear from today's sponsor. As a medical professional, you should be focused on fixing people's lives. But a key decision maker in your practice, you have to figure out how to grow your patient volume, keep up with the reviews, and how to stay connected on social. You likely don't have time for that. You went to med school, not marketing school. So good news, your team at Advice Media, they did that. Their pyramid of success was created for professionals like you. And the pyramid has six stages that when combined, creates an ideal digital presence. So give them 30 minutes of your time to do a consult with you. They would bet that you're doing some of the things really well, and there might be some areas that you can improve. So just for spending the time with them, they're going to give you a $60 Amazon gift card. So don't delay in booking that demo. And you can do that by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. And that link is in the description of the show you're listening to me in right now. So I had referenced that we are going to be doing the member month. And what my thought was is that there is a ton of great conversations happening in our community all day, every day. If you haven't joined our community, you really should go to financialresidency.com slash community. It'll take you to the Facebook group. I think there's about 6,000 of us in the group now, and it's going to ask you for your MPI or your spouse's MPI to verify that we can keep the group secure. Once you get in, you're going to find a ton of great information and a lot of really cool people that are listening to the podcast, just like you that are wanting to learn more about personal finance. Some of them are a little more advanced and they're helping other people by answering questions, which is always fun. But I want to chime in and bring the community into the podcast this month. And so I just selected a few little posts that have been posted. I will not say the full names. Obviously, the names are there in our community, but I won't do that to them on the podcast because they have no idea I'm doing this. But I thought it would be really fun to pull in some of the questions and let me just kind of riff on it for a little bit. So. Kristen was the first question that we selected and her question basically said, what kind of savings or investment accounts do you set up for your children? What are the pros and cons of different ones? Talk to me like a child. I know zero things about finance. Kristen, we're going to fix that. We're going to help you understand personal finance. You are in the right spot first and foremost. And I love that you're asking questions. So please keep asking lots and lots of questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. It's just dumb not to ask them. So please keep doing that. I think it's awesome. So there's a couple different types of accounts that you can have when it comes to saving for your kids' college. There's an UTMA and an UGMA account, and there is a 529 account. Now, there might be some other different things that might be sold to you. I've definitely heard of insurance agents who also pose as financial advisors, which they're not. Basically recommend whole life insurance policies or some sort of permanent insurance. Please don't do that. That is not, I don't think anyone should have those, but please don't put your kid's college savings into some sort of permanent 
life insurance. Some will also use a Roth IRA, which could be bad and could be good. I think it is very specific on the person and 98% of the time, it's not the best option. There's a couple of differences between 529 plans and these custodial type UGMA and UPMA accounts, and that's UTMA and UGMA. I'm actually just saying the whole thing together because that's kind of how they're commonly referred, but that is the acronym that I'm actually stating. And they're really custodial accounts. And there's a couple differences. One is the tax advantages. A big one is the ownership and the actual control of funds. And then the last one is your investment options and how much you're actually allowed to contribute in. Now, if we're looking at 529 plans, those are plans that are run by the states. And every state is sadly different in this. Some states give you a state deduction. Other states like California doesn't give you a deduction for your taxes. But when you're looking at your states, it doesn't mean that you actually have to use the state that you're in. So I primarily have told and talked about a lot on the podcast that, you know, we're in California and I don't use California's 529 plan for my kids. I actually use College Backer. And I believe they're still giving away 25 free dollars for those that want to sign up using College Backer. If you go to financialresidency.com slash College Backer. But essentially, they are sitting mostly on top of Utah's My529 plan. And they're kind of like a tech solution on top of that. And when you are opening up a 529 account, you're basically putting money away for your kid's college that, again, depending on your state, could and cannot have a state tax deduction, and it's allowed to grow tax-free. And then if you decide to pull the money out for their education, you can do so and it comes out tax-free. Now there's some limitations on what you can and can't do with that and how much you pull out. So example would be that if you're trying to pull out money to pay for not college, which you're trying to pay for their elementary school, private school, whatever it is, there's certain limits that you can only pull out uh, there. But when you're saving in a 529, they really provide a lot of flexibility because you not only get tax savings, but it allows the owner that has the account, which would be you, to keep control regardless of your kid's age. It allows you to switch to another beneficiary if your kid decides that they don't want to go to college or they don't need all the money. So it is pretty flexible in that sense. Now, if you end up having your kids go to college, it's tons of money that was in there. They don't use all of it. You don't switch it to someone else within the family and you pull money out. There could be some issues with that, but most of the time, the benefits are going to far outseed the cons of that. Again, everyone's situation is different, so please don't take that to the bank, but it's something to consider. Now, if you've got money that you would like to give to your kiddos, but it's not just for education, then you might want to use a UTMA or a UGMA account. Those are essentially custodial accounts. And with those custodial accounts, there's a lot fewer tax advantages than the 529 plans. And when we look at unearned income from those, the first $1,100 is actually tax-free. And then the next $1,100, so up to $2,200, is taxed at the child's tax rate which is going to be a lot lower than yours. And then anything over $2,200 of unearned income is going to be taxed at the rates of your rate, not the kids' rates, which is going to be likely a lot higher than that. And once the kiddo hits of age, it is actually their money. And that is actually quite terrifying, to be honest. So you have to make sure that when you're going to try to save for their college, that it probably should go into a 529 account because you still control ownership of it. There's 
a lot more flexibility and distribution options. It can pay for a broad range of things. But if there's a way that you want to save that's not for their college and it could be for other things, the custodial accounts actually do have some flexibility in them because it's not just all cash investments or cash contribution. You can contribute stock, you can contribute bonds, you can contribute potentially real estate, you can contribute fine art, all sorts of things that can be contributed into those type of accounts. Whereas a 529, the only thing that you can contribute is cash. And the investment options are a lot more limited, which is likely a good thing, but they're limited to essentially more ETFs, more mutual funds, and not individual stocks. They're not real estate or anything like that, which I think is a good thing. 529s have a balance limit, and it's usually anywhere between three and 500,000, but the UTMA and the UGMA accounts can grow limitlessly. So you want to make sure that you're balancing out the right pieces of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish. And there's different pieces, how much you can actually contribute to a 529 really based on the gift tax exclusion, what you're putting in. But I don't want to go too down the weeds on that. The way I kind of look at this is for the majority of people, a 529 is going to be a perfect way to put money in and let the investments in the plan, they're going to grow tax-free and all the withdrawals can be used for tuition and room and board and other qualified education expenses. And if you needed that money prior to college, and a lot of people are putting money in to get the state deductions, and then they'll use it for private school. And if that's what you're trying to do, that's all good. But everyone's situation is a little bit different. You can only withdraw $10,000 annually per student. So it's just something to keep in mind of. I'm a huge fan of 529s, huge fan of College Backer as well. And they're not sponsoring the show. I just like what they're doing. And they're giving that $25 away, I believe. That's still an option. So Kristen, thank you for putting the question in and there was a lot of great discussion around that, but hopefully that was helpful for you. Diane had a really good question around financial advisors and said, we have a financial advisor recommending long-term taxable investment account with fees of 1.2% for active management with the goal of tax loss harvesting. Is this worth it? Otherwise I'm leaning toward opening an ETF with Vanguard for a similar rate of return for much lower fees. Thanks in advance. So most of you know that even when I read that, I cringed a little bit, but Diane, thank you for posting this in the group. And there were some really thought out and I think great answers to this. One, you shouldn't be looking for someone to actively manage your money. We're all about the passive investment strategies. And what I'm looking at is low cost, highly diversified index funds. We're looking to invest in the market. We're not trying to outperform the market. So I'm just going kind of high level here and then we'll get a little more granular. And we want to have the market dictate our performance. And if you're trying to earn more, you might have to take additional risk, which might mean that you have to lower the amount of bonds or fixed income that you have in your portfolio and that you have more stock. And that's okay. You can play around with some online calculators and try to figure out what that is. But your financial advisor, one, shouldn't ever be selling products. And two, you shouldn't be working with someone that charges a 1.2% AUM fee. That's kind of ridiculous. If someone's going to actually manage money, just have it be a fixed flat fee. Really simple, cut and dry, and call it a day. Now, the concept of tax loss harvesting, which I did a whole show on tax loss harvesting back in early 2020. So check that out about what it is and how it works. I don't want to go through it all here. But for some advisors to do that type of work, it isn't that 
difficult of a task. It's just actually doing it. And what it's trying to do is force you to sell high and buy lower. So as your portfolio gets out of whack, let's say that stocks ran up like crazy and bonds haven't done much. And let's just, as a sake of easy discussion, say that you had 70% of your portfolio in stock and you look down and it's at 76%, you will likely need to sell 6% of your stock and buy in back to the fixed income side to get it back to your 70-30 split. That is just rebalancing. But when we're looking at tax loss harvesting, it's going into the individual lots of things that you have purchased and seeing what is at a loss and what is at a gain. Can you offset the two? And likely you can as markets are fluctuating all the time. And you want to basically have the ability to take some loss while still redeploying your capital back into other things so you're not sitting in cash and you're invested. Now you got to make sure that you don't have any issues that cause a wash sale and Again, I don't want to go crazy in detail, but the idea of someone charging 1.2% for active management and then on top of it, pitching that they're doing tax loss harvesting, is kind of silly. It's kind of like the next thing they're going to say is, well, I can do your backdoor routes free as well. Yes, they could. We do those hundreds of times a year for all our clients. It's not very difficult work by any means, especially if you've done it once or twice. It's not that hard to actually do. Some people just want an advisor to manage things for them, and that is okay if that is you, but please don't pay 1.2% to the advisor in order to do that. I think it's a, honestly, in the long term, it's a giant waste of money. A lot of times we will see early career physicians get pitched products and all sorts of stuff from advisors saying they'll do things for quote unquote free. One, nothing in life is free, but two, they'll pitch you this AUM fee structure, one, one and a half percent. And that's because when you look down, you're like, well, I have next to nothing because I just finished training. And that fee is very you know, minimal. Well, over time, that fee actually grows quite a bit. We've had clients that were paying their advisors forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and had been working with their advisors for ten, fifteen, twenty years, and you don't realize how quick that one point two percent truly adds up. Now, I'm not even going into the whole active management piece, which I don't agree with. I'm just talking about fees. So please be very careful with those. I would try to stay away from any advisors that are hawking products or pushing you into an AUM type structure and kind of opt for something a bit different. There was a lot of really great conversations around that, but that was kind of my take on that piece. And our last question for today's show came from Allie in our community, and it was around a flex spending account. And she said that they're changing jobs in August and also changing health insurance. They have a large family and always put in and use up the highest allowed uh, amounts into the FSA, the flexible spending account. They said this year so far, we've only spent $500. We could submit some receipts to possibly have more. The hospital benefit advisor suggests we ask for the money to stop being taken from future paychecks. Now we could use it up. We have three kids in overnight training pants. We're a family of eight and sunscreen alone gets pricey. Oh, I bet you that would get pricey. They have dental work coming up that everyone's due for an eye exam except for her. And they're trying to figure out should they stop payments or not? Now there's a couple of pieces to think about. One is that your flexible spending account is actually truly linked to your job. And if you leave that job, and you're eligible, your FSA account is linked to a COBRA continuation coverage, then you can continue using the FSA. But for the most part, 
people don't have that. And so when your job ends, the money that is left unused in your FSA goes to your employer. So once basically you're done with the job, that coverage will end unless you have the COBRA continuation coverage. Side note on this is even if you do have the continuation of your FSA with COBRA, that money can't be used for the COBRA health insurance premiums. So just a little tidbit there. But there are things that you can do to plan ahead if you're going to leave your job. So if you're going to leave your job, let's say you're in training and that, you know, next year, June, you're going to be done and that you're going to take some time off or whatever it may be, you can signify how much you're going to put in the FSA. But in reality, you might actually be able to take more money out of the FSA than you actually put into it. And so if you're going to use your FSA to pay for certain medical expenses, even if you haven't contributed that much that year, now the IRS is going to cap how much that can be. But there's an interesting potential strategy there that if as long as you're committing to pay into that and you actually end up needing more up to that amount, you actually get to take a little bit more than what you put in, which is kind of weird, but it's an interesting little tidbit. But essentially, long story short, is that any money that is left unused in your FSA will actually go to your employer Again, unless you have that COBRA continuating coverage, that is kind of its own little mess in a ball, if you will, that I won't go too much into. So I would say, use it up, put the money in if you have it, make sure you've got those qualifying receipts that you're submitting and actually getting some of that reimbursement for. But there are some pros and cons and it's everyone is unique in this piece. So just make sure that you're doing the right thing for you guys and that before you make any decisions, you figure out the pros and cons of that for your unique situation, especially with a family of eight, you likely have lots of interesting costs that are going to come through that could be useful to talk through. All right. I lied. I'm going to do one more because I saw this and I actually really like it because I'm just scrolling through and trying to talk through what some of this is going to be. And I really like Jessica's question that she put here that she's looking to start a backdoor Roth this year, but she's unsure how to initiate it since she currently has an IRA funded from a previous 401k, which is pre-tax money, as well as a separate IRA with post-tax money. She said, my understanding is that both accounts would be recognized by the IRS as one, that's true, and that the entire amount would be taxed at my ordinary income tax rate if converted to a Roth. Also true. I'm currently unemployed and do not have the option to roll into an employer 401k or SEP or simple solo K. I don't think should do a simple and then do the back door as most people would actually talk about. So do we have any advice? Now you will be able to convert that money and the IRS will look at that as an ordinary income. And you've got to be careful because there's interesting with pro rata rules that you can end up messing up. But one of the interesting options, and someone has actually mentioned it down in the comments here, is that if there's any way that you could take on potentially some additional income by not even being fully employed, and there's ways to open up some sort of you know solo 401k or if your spouse is a 1099 worker, let's say that they do emergency medicine and that you're helping them with some of their stuff. There's all sorts of things that anyone can be thinking of as this situation comes up. Someone even put in some medical surveys. That's a great opportunity. But if there is a way that you can derive some sort of actual income and be able to open up a solo K, there you can roll that money into that brand new plan that will eventually open up. A lot of this depends, though, on some things that we just don't have access to in the information. If the balance is tiny, let's say, and I don't mean to be insensitive to anyone, but let's say that it was $20,000, it might be just worth 
ignoring all these other little holes and things that you got to do and just convert the money and move on. Now that is a decent amount of money from a tax standpoint, but just getting it in and assuming that there's a long career ahead of you might just be easier and simple just to cut around a few of these things and just roll the money in and pay the tax. But if we're talking about 200,000, now we've got to be a little more creative in this. So I think you're thinking through the right things. A lot of the answers that people have given you are actually pretty good options for that. I know that John McCarthy, who's my partner over at Physician Tax Advisors, had given you a little bit from a tax standpoint, not necessarily talking about parata rules and things, but something else to think about that you can end up picking up potentially some partial conversions. Moving over to our financial malpractice segments, I've got special guest on John Apino back. I can't get rid of him. John, welcome back. Always good to be here, man. Always good to see you. Super fun to hang out and hear more of these horror stories. And we appreciate all the help you give us, even just with contract reviews. And I know that you're helping out our community, Todd. What do you have for us today with contracts? All right. So equipment and supplies, equipment and resources. These are sections in most contracts, and it's usually fairly generic says something that the employer will give the employee tools and staff and equipment to complete the job. And it's pretty much left as that. We go into that if it's important to the physician and talk about their expectations. And sometimes it's not too big of a deal. There are hospitalists are joining 26 other hospitalists. You know, there's really no fancy equipment or technology that they need. Other times it can be super important. So we had a physician who was leaving jobs. I got a job now. I'm going to leave and take this other job. And when I asked him, well, what's going on with your current job? He said he was part of a group in a hospital system that used a certain, or a smaller hospital, I think it was, that used a certain brand of equipment that he liked. So he didn't think to have anything in the agreement. And the contract was assigned. They'd moved the contract over to the other facility when they had a merger and acquisition, which we've talked about before. And the other facility was much more restrictive as far as their contracting process with vendors and equipment providers. And he was being forced to use a different brand of equipment and a different set of instruments than he was comfortable with. I think he said for over 80% of his cases, based on whatever contract it was that the other facility had signed. So he didn't feel comfortable doing it. And so he was willing to walk away from the position and, you know, lose money, pay back signing bonuses, purchase tail insurance, lose vesting to his 401k for their matching contributions and all of that because he just didn't feel safe doing it. And so not overlooking those sections can be very important. Another example, we had a urology surgeon who was obligated or who wanted a defined robot that would Vinci something or other to help do these cases. So when it comes to the equipment and resource section, which becomes pretty generic, I mentioned to him, they don't have this robot now? He said, no, but they've told me they're going to get it. And in his situation, he didn't want the job if they weren't even going to have it there. And of course, I'm verbally going to tell you is one thing, and I'm actually going to have it here for you is another thing, especially with what we just went through with coronavirus and hospitals, capital budgets. So that was one of my advices to him was if this is important to you, if this is something that you really want and you don't want the job, unless they have this particular machine, then you should definitely ask to put that in the contract. And if they won't put it in the contract or if they put something in the contract that they may provide, there should be definitions on what happens if they don't. So maybe you can terminate with no non-compete or no tail insurance to purchase. You don't have to pay back your recruitment incentives, if you will. And not overlooking the equipment and the resource section 
can be important because again, it could mean that you're at a position that you lose your skill set that you trained on, or it could mean that you feel like you're not providing great service to patients because you maybe don't feel as safe using a different brand of something or a different piece of equipment. So every section in a contract, of course, is super important and it's vital that the physicians understand every section, but not overlooking something as simple as equipment and resources, even if it's for a certified diabetic educator for an endocrinologist going to a new endocrinology clinic, something like understanding how they hire staff can be super important as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because we just talked with someone who was looking to be a prospective client of the tax practice physician tax advisors. They basically had said they were extremely frustrated with their job and everything. I was like, oh, well, what's going on? What's why? Like, even though we don't typically get into that. And it was because they changed providers and they were a derm and a lot of the stuff and creams and things that they use had to be changed over to a different brand because then a whole new contract and he had no say over it. And he was really frustrated and he was trying to figure out, is this possible? Can he go do it? And his tax questions were, well, if I just go buy this and I eat the cost, can that offset my income? And it was like, no, you're W-2. There's a lot of other things that kind of go into that one. And you'd also have to make sure it's cleared. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different legal red tape to go through that I can't and I'm not going to talk about. But it was just interesting. And so something as simple as that, that dramatically impacts the job. I think this is a fantastic horror story. Things that you put in those machines, by the way, are not cheap at all. And understanding, you know, when capital budgets are approved and how capital budgets work, even if there's nothing that you want in the agreement, even if there's nothing specific that you have to have, having that discussion with them to know that decision is made, you know, every September and we allocate budgets in October for the next financial year that starts in January or whatever it is, or understanding that your practice manager can spend money up to 500 or 5,000 and anything over 50,000 needs to go through the division. Anything over a million needs to go to the board. Even if they're not willing to put something in the agreement, I think understanding the process. And then, like we said, understanding how that could change in a year like COVID knowing that there's also other physicians pulling at that capital budget. So minimally invasive surgery might be wanting something that OBGYN would want something different, that the urologic surgeon might want something different and cardiothoracic surgery could have different needs as well as the diabetic educator needs or the dermatology cream. I mean, there's so many different things that are pulling at that capital budget. It's important to know what that process looks like. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being back on. We appreciate you helping out our community understand contracts a little bit better. For anyone interested or needing to get their contracts reviewed, we love partnering with Contract Diagnostics and John and his team. And you can reach out to them by going to financialresidency.com slash contract. Hopefully this was a little bit helpful for you. I really appreciate you asking the question in the community. And I really appreciate the community for some really good responses. So nice work on that team. Now, I love all of you and I really appreciate you guys for being here. And like I said, things are going to be a little bit different for the month of August, just based on some travel and changing an office and trying to do this in a very weird type clothed spot, not in my office, AKA the shed. But I appreciate all of you. And if you guys have other questions that you'd like to ask or have me answer on the show, this is the time to do it because I will be pulling stuff from our community all month long and answering your guys' questions. And if you want to leave a voicemail, I would love that. We have some that we're going to add in, but I would love to do more shows with more voicemails. And you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question, record it, and I will put it up on air. I'm also going to be pulling stuff from our community. So make sure 
you go join our community and you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash community. One last thing before we go, and that is to remember our sponsor today, which is Advice Media. So please don't forget to schedule that console with them. Receive the free $60 gift card, which is pretty sweet. And maybe get some strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing and not doing for you. So contact Advice Media by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media, like we always do. Put it in the link of the description of the show that you're listening to me and in whatever player you're on. Appreciate all of you being here. Hopefully this has been helpful for you. Please be active in our community. I would love to see more comments, more questions come through. I'd love to keep adding all this stuff into future shows. I want to figure out a way to bring you guys in the show more, and I think this might work. So please keep asking questions. Please keep calling in questions. And I really appreciate all of you. It was fun. I did a quick little meet and greet slash discussion at the AFP about a week ago. And there was a listener that was in that crowd and getting to see people actually listen and hear some of the feedback is always really fun. So if you have a program that you're interested in potentially having me speak at, you can also email me, ryan at financialresidency.com. The team will help potentially coordinate what that might look like. All right, everyone, have a great week, and I will catch you soon. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.